Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and smart technical analysts. We are going to LOL IMO. We want to liberate ourselves from the soccer Illuminati and democratize thoughtful football analysis. We hope that you finish the podcast with three or four cool th- soccer things that you didn't know before. Please join the revolution. Our team is in an, as international as the English Premier League. We are American, Chinese, Italian, Indian, as well as our single English player. We are the world. We are the EPL podcast. My name is Chris Mumford, a professor of innovation at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm a former university goalkeeper and current cranky goalkeeper coach. For those of you who enjoyed Money Heist or La Casa de Papel, I'm known as the professor. Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao. We are joined by Harshel Patel, a former JP Morgan financial analyst turned soccer analyst. He's forgotten more tactics and analytics than I will ever know. While he enjoys reading greatly, he's a remarkable dancer, particularly hip hop. We're trying to procure an appearance for him on the American show Soul Train. For these reasons, we call him the dancer. David Seymour is a coach at the Claremont Football Academy in England and was a former coach at NCFC, the largest youth club in the U.S. He co-hosts the TFA Bundesliga podcast and writes for the magazine. For these reasons, we call him Coach. Daniele Pruch is a professional soccer player at North Carolina Football Club and journalist. He is a triple threat in that he's smart as a whip, has a hammer of a shot, and is very charming. He is the co-host of the TFA City Op podcast. We call him 009, as that's the position he plays. So we have a professor, analyst, coach, and professional player. We are a veritable Ocean's Four, not Chat 11. I anticipate that we'll be violating the podcaster financial fair play regulations and may be sanctioned by UEFA, like Manchester City. We've received generous support from from Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analytics community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com and join and support the movement. Let's get restarted. Or more appropriately, let's talk about the restart of the EPL. So um, here's what we know so far. On next Tuesday, all the clubs are going to get together and they're going to make a decision on if uh, the season should uh, restart. If that is successful on Thursday, um, they're going to determine how it's going to be done. Uh, David, what are your what are your thoughts on on some of the key issues with with respect to the restart? I think I think one of the big things that seems to be jumping out to me is the amount of players that seem to be speaking out on a, a bit of a low key um, a low key level about not feeling comfortable at returning. And I think that there's a huge amount of pressure with both the Bundesliga, obviously, is well underway now, and La Liga has been given a start date of June eight, I think. So. Uh, I think the Premier League is is seeing pressure from its sort of European rivals as such, but um, yeah, I think player safety has to be 
first here. And if, if you've got players speaking out about it, I saw Danny Rose spoke out about it the other day. I'm sure I've seen a couple of others recently as well. Then I think that's an issue that certainly needs considering. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Harshel, what's what's your take on the restart? What are the things that jump out at you? I agree with David in that um, player safety and player uh, health of the players needs to be paramount because a lot of them have have said whoever has spoken out, some of them have spoken about them having vulnerable family members. Like, for example, Troy Deeney, who's captain at Watford, has said that he won't return to training because he has vulnerable family members at home. He has a kid and he's afraid of inadvertently, obviously, catching the virus and then potentially um, transmitting it to his uh, to his kid. So that is obviously one of the biggest concerns around the restart. But another thing is the fact that a lot of clubs themselves are not comfortable and it's been an evolving conversation where there were clubs which were not comfortable earlier who are okay with going ahead. And one of the biggest contentions or the biggest issues around that has been the fact that if the Premier League does return, it's likely to do so at neutral venues where neither of the clubs will be at their own stadium. They may not even be in their own city. So, for example, Liverpool could play Aston Villa, for example, in London. You know, so that has been spoken about by the clubs as especially the ones that are towards bottom and in a relegation fight as being unfair in that if they have three or four home games left, that that would cause a lot of disadvantage to them in terms of the impact that that sort of game being held at their own stadium as opposed to at a neutral venue could potentially have. So those clubs at the bottom have been some of the most vocal opponents of having the season go ahead at neutral venues. So, and there are still clubs which are opposing it. So I don't know. Yeah. So it'll be interesting because I, I know a study just came out of 191 matches played without fans. And uh, with fans, the win rate was 46%, uh, pretty considerably. Without um, fans, the win rate for the home team was 36%. And the lose rate was 33%. So, uh, you know, I know 190 games is not a huge sample, but that seems to be a, still a, a pretty good leading indicator that maybe the, the, um, the uh, no-fan home advantage is actually de minimis. Daniela, you're, you're a current professional pro player, uh, and actually your league is, is, is uh, trying to determine whether to, uh, to go – uh, forward uh, with the season. What's your take on kind of a player's perspective on uh, COVID-19 and sequestering and all this sort of stuff? You know, you have players like me who are young in their first professional year or uh, at the beginning of their career. And I feel like as we would like to go back because we need to prove ourselves in this world, in this, um, in this, uh, during this season. But at the same time, I can tell from the, the talks that are going on every day with my, my club here that other players, like Harshal said, other players are family and uh, they obviously think twice before, before going back. There is no doubt that everybody is excited at the thought of, of coming back, but we're going to have to find some, uh, some common ground and, uh, before actually making a, uh, a comeback. Okay. Well, good. Well, I, I do think that... Um it's certainly a very complicated moral issue and we all want want things to be safe the question is is 
how do we define safe, right? And what is a level of acceptable risk? And I imagine we're keeping our fingers crossed that on Tuesday, all the different parties come to an amicable um, solution. So then on Thursday, we can decide to move forward. Um, the logistics are going to be challenging. You know, it seems like there's a lot of pushback on whether to play uh, in their home venues or not. So I'm going to be fascinated with that. And just the sheer travel. You know, I know that uh, some of the leagues in the U.S. have great trepidation because of the large distances. But even traveling within England, um, there's still uh, points of potential exposure. Um, so uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds. Um, but I, I, I say that. We are the EPL podcast, so we are quite excited about the EPL starting. Uh, it's probably a great understatement. Chris, was that, was that study that you referred to, uh, surely they could have just um, looked at any regular Man City home game to see what it's like to play without fans. <laughs> You're absolutely right about that. So, um, uh, so let's move to the next topic, which is injury updates. <clears throat> um, clearly, this... Uh, break has been a disadvantage for some teams that have been on a real roll and perhaps a significant advantage to those teams that were suffering injury, sig injuries of significant uh, contributing players. Um, you know, the, the first team that comes to mind is, is, is Tottenham. Um, Harry Kane um, had a really debilitating hamstring injury and they pretty much thought he was done until the summer. Um, but he's had some some time back uh, and is actually training. Um, no official word yet, but that could be a real difference maker for Tottenham to make a, a late, late push into Champions League uh, form. Um, Harshel, can you talk about um, Man U? They seem to be another potential beneficiary of uh, the time off. Oh, absolutely. Um, United lost Rash Marcus Rashford to a double stress fracture in his back um, when he was played in an FA Cup game against Wolves and Solskjaer, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was actually criticised at that time by a lot of United fans and some of the media in general as well because he had said that um, Rashford was actually playing with a bit of a knock and he still decided to bring him on and then he ended up suffering a sort of a double stress fracture which potentially ruled him out for the rest of the season and Rashford has been on in probably the best form of his career this season because he's scored I think 15 or 16 goals in the league. He's got a bunch of assists and he was really the catalyst for United um, going forward. But it seems as if if we do come back in the next uh, couple of weeks or so that if not straight at the beginning, Rashford, Marcus Rashford will probably play some part in this season, which may not have been the case, which probably wouldn't have been the case, to be honest, if um, the season had been interrupted. And uh, so that's one. And then the other big um, sort of update or the other big player we'll have coming back is Paul Pogba. I mean, there's he's had a bit of a mystery injury in the sense that he's had some sort of foot injury since September and he's not played at all since then. I think other than maybe a couple of substitute appearances here and there, but he's basically not been a part of the squad this year. And obviously there have been, there is always going to be rumours around him leaving. But just in terms of even if he is fit enough to come back and play in these last eight or nine games that Manchester United have left, and the potential for him being able to combine with Bruno Fernandez, who has hit the ground running since he joined the club in January. So Rashford and Pogba alone could just propel United into the top four and make them get into the Champions League, which may not have been possible had we 
not stopped the season earlier. So as you said, it, it, this break has proven to be a bit of a blessing in disguise for United in that. So, Coach, uh, let's look at the other end of the table, uh, uh, Bournemouth and Aston Villa in terms of uh, how injuries have impacted their season and how that any sort of potential returns could impact whether they make the cut this year or not. Yeah, Bournemouth is particularly interesting. I think um, they've had they've had some real bad luck, possibly more so than almost anyone else in the league, in my opinion. I think losing David Brooks was a huge loss. He's missed, uh, I think he missed the whole the whole season. And um, we'll talk about a bit a, a little bit later on. But you see Callum Wilson get isolated constantly um, playing as a, a lone striker, and David Brooks is the kind of player that can really link the midfield well with the forward. It's, an, it's a position that they've they've lacked. Um, other than that, I mean, you've got uh, Lloyd Kelly, who they signed for 13 million last summer. Uh, he's a left back from Bristol City. Um, he's been out for. Has he been out for the whole season, Harshal? I think he has, right? Or at least most of. I think so. I don't think he's played. Yeah, most of the season he's not really played. Um, Charlie Daniels, who has another left back. So that's two left backs they've 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 been without. He's been injured for most of the season. Uh, Jack Stacey was a January signing, uh, summer signing, apologies, summer signing, and he's missed several games as well. Um, so, that, yeah, they, they've been very unfortunate. I think Arthur Burrich is injured as well, but he's less important. Um, and then with Villa, I mean, obviously they invested £22.5 million in uh, Wesley in the summer, and he didn't really hit the ground running. I think he scored five goals so far. Uh, for Villa, but I mean, he's still an important part to how they play, particularly as Villa leak goals, so they, they sort of have a bit of a, we'll try and score as many as you, which hasn't really worked, um, so that's a big loss for them, and he is, I think he's going to be back in training beginning of June, but I wouldn't I wouldn't expect him to feature for the end of the season and of course they brought in Pepe Reina as well, and they've got uh, Jed Steer and Tom Heaton injured, so They've been a bit unfortunate as well with injuries. So, so Daniele, t- give us your thoughts on how one comes back from these injuries and, you know, this time off. And, you know, really number one is injury recovery. And then number two is you guys started your season, you had your first match, and then all of a sudden you ended up sitting for some weeks. I- explain to us how both of those dynamics work. So for sure, when you come back from an injury, you uh, are going to try to rush things because you look forward to coming back on the, on the pitch. And the process, uh, during the process, resting is fundamental, but it is frustrating as well because you are going to spend a lot of time with, uh, in the training room with your physical therapist. You're going to take small steps every day. It's going to look like this is going to go very slow. It's going to be repetitive. And, uh, but the, the most important part is stick, sticking with the doctors, with the physical therapists, listening to what, uh, what they have to say and, uh, and come back only when, uh, you're a hundred percent. When you come back, there's going to be some movements that you're going to be afraid of, uh, making because maybe that's exactly movement that gets you injured in the first place. So you, you maybe adjust, you may be adjusting your, your movements in that sense until, you get one, two, three weeks into into training, and then you're gonna be able to clear clear up your mind and um, and and be yourself 100%. In terms of uh, the um, the break, 
uh, it's tough. Like you said, we play one game and then we we get suspended. Our season got postponed. Um, we don't know yet if we're going to come back. So right now we're training, not knowing when there will be um, a season and if there, there will be one. So, you know, the motivation right now is is harder to um, to collect, but um, it's good to go through this with uh, with your teammates slash roommates. So whenever the season will come back, uh, we'll, we'll be ready. Good, good. Um, well, so why don't we go ahead and and switch gears a little bit uh, and and talk about um, the next topic, which is uh, we're going to focus on relegation, um, who the potential candidates are for that. I'm going to go ahead and, and share the screen here. Uh, so this is how the table is currently. We've got Brighton at 29, West Ham, Watford, Bournemouth tied at 27. Aston Villa is at 25, but they do have uh, an additional game to play. And then, unfortunately, Norwich is at lowly 21. So uh, some interesting dynamics here. Uh, I think it's really going to come down to the wire. Um, David, can you walk us through uh, some of the uh, – how you're looking at the uh, the relegation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll quickly run through some sort of basic stuff that I looked at and – I think, first of all, when you look at the, the situations, it's important to look at um, expected points as well to see which teams really deserve to be down there and which don't. So this this bar graph here, if you're, if you're listening and not watching, we've got a bar graph here which shows um, both the points and expected points of every, every team in, in the bottom half of the expected points table. So, um, I mean, if we were looking at, I put it in order. We've got Aston Villa, Bournemouth, Newcastle, Norwich, West Ham, Crystal Palace. Then, interestingly, Arsenal, Spurs, Brighton, and Watford. That's an ascending order. Um, yeah, there were some some interesting things to look at here. I think both Villa and Bournemouth looks like they deserve to be where they are. Um, whereas Newcastle, who are in fact in thirteenth place, have clearly been quite lucky with their game. So, you know, I wanted to look at why that might have been. Um, whereas Norwich on the flip side have been unlucky and Norwich actually should have 10 points more than, uh, than they do according to the expected points total. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. It's particularly interesting to see as well, Watford were above both Arsenal and Spurs as were Brighton and uh, have clearly been unlucky, but nevertheless, Watford are in 17th, Brighton and 15th and very much in this relegation fight. So you're saying that Norwich could theoretically be at... 31 points and and well above the fray um, ba based upon this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, with, with anything like this, it's, it's all theoretical and, and, and doesn't normally work out like this, but I would go back to exact, for example, um, I read this in football hackers, which is a book by uh, Christopher Beerman, who is a, uh, a German writer and he used a brilliant example to discuss expected goals, um, which links very heavily with expected points of uh, Newcastle when Alan Pardew was in charge and they had a brilliant season where they finished in the top half. I, well, I want to say they finished fifth and they did. Okay, there you go. So, And then Papi Cissé had a breakout season. He scored three or four ridiculously good goals. But their expected goals was actually very low. And the following season, they were around sort of 15th, 16th and I believe Pardew was sacked. But actually, if you go back and look at the data, really, they were just incredibly lucky in that first season where they finished fifth and the second season where Padre was sacked, 
um, or however many scenes he'd been in charge. But that season where he was sacked, that was where they really should have been according to form both seasons. So it's quite a useful tool to predict at least long-term form. Right. Well, if we believe uh, Elon Musk and we live in a world of many simulations, uh, Norwich could be middle table or even contesting for Europa uh, in a simulation. So, um, well, we wish them the best of luck. Um, as we move to um, the, uh, the next slide here, We've got conceded and expected goals against. Help, help walk us through this, Coach. Yeah, I mean, so again, we've got the, the teams in order this time of expected goals against. And then we've got two uh, constant lines going across with the, the yellow representing expected goals uh, against. And that's the same as expected goals, obviously, uh, for the league. And the purple line is going for actually the average amount of conceded goals for the league, not just for these teams, for the whole the whole league. So the average expected goals or expected goals against for the league is 41.53 and expected conceded, uh, sorry, and the actual conceded goals for the league is 39.2. And there's some interesting sort of, um, I mean, for example, Villa have got a far higher expected goals against than they actually have. It's around, I think, 63 is their expected goals against. And they still got the leakiest defence in the league with 56. So they're actually outperforming their expected goals against and they're, they're still terrible at the back. So that's not good news for Villa. Um, Norwich have outperformed their expected goals against, but again, they are a team that have struggled defensively. Um, if we look sort of further up the table, and it's interesting to see Crystal Palace, for example, might suggest why they're further up in the table and not lower down because of their defence vastly outperforming their expected goals against um, low 30s for the actual amount of goals they can see. I want to say 32, is that right, Harshal? Yeah, and um, their expected goals against is over the, uh, the, the Premier League average. Um, so some interesting things to look at there. Um, West Ham, unfortunately for me, have conceded the exact amount they should have done, which is telling when you think about how shocking Roberto was in goal. I'm sure you... Uh, uh, had many uh, moments, Chris, where you were wondering what on earth he was doing. Um, but a lot of those goals that he conceded would have had a very low expected goal value. So perhaps actually West Ham's defence has been slightly better than the expected goals would suggest because of um, those goals. I mean, I, I think I, at the time I went back and there were six or seven goals that Roberto conceded where you really would have expected him to have done better. Um, yeah. All right. Next slide here. Yeah, I mean, this is just something that really popped up when we're looking at Newcastle. Um, something that we spoke about earlier off air was how Steve Bruce has actually been relatively sort of uh, well regarded for the job he's done at Newcastle this season. And many are suggesting he should keep the job uh, if the takeover happens. And yeah, there's some interesting stats, certainly with regards to their expected goals, expected goals against. But I just wanted to bring this up because the, the league average for uh, pass per defensive action, which... Um, is 11.6. So, in pass per defensive action, if you don't know, is um, it happened? It occurs in the, the final 60% of the pitch is where it's measured, and it's where a opponent's pass starts, and you count the amount of uh, passes in a game by an opponent in that 60%, and then you divide it by the defensive actions. So, things like one tackles, slide tackles, interceptions, those sort of things. So, that's how you work out your PPDA. And interestingly for Newcastle, theirs uh, is the highest by some distance. It's just, I think it's just below 18, but the graph makes it look like it's 18, uh, but I could be wrong there. 
um, way below um, anyone else's in terms of intensity. So we, we're not seeing an intense press from Newcastle. They're clearly the sort of team that sits back um, and tries to make teams break them down. But actually, that Newcastle PPDA is the lowest in any of the European top leagues. Good. So that's the top five. Harshell, help us un unpack this here. What What are your prognostications on who's going to get relegated? So if you look at the table right now, obviously Villa have a game in hand. Um, and there are three teams which are on 27 points. So West Ham, Watford, Burnmouth are all level on 27 points from 29 games. They all have nine games to play. Um, Villa are two points behind them with a game in hand. So they have 10 games to play. Uh, but that game in hand is against Arsenal, I believe. Um, I may be getting that wrong. Uh, but the point is they have a game in hand. So I think Norwich, sadly enough, I think are done. They have six points to make up. I mean, we have seen teams come back and sort of uh, push and have amazing comebacks and uh, survive. I mean, Leicester are the biggest example in terms of sort of recent uh, examples where we've, we saw them come back from the dead in the season prior to the season when they won uh, the Premier League. So in the 2014-15 season under, uh, under who was the manager? Neil Warner. No. He, he told me about his. Do you mean Nigel, he, Nigel Pearson? Leicester. Yes. Nigel Pearson. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So Nigel Pearson was the manager back then. He got them back from the dead. That was the biggest example in recent times. Roy Hodgson has done a similar job with Crystal Palace in recent times, but I don't see Norwich being able to survive. Of the rest of the teams, um, as much as this may hurt you, David, I actually think West Ham are a bit vulnerable because Watford have done well since the change in management, relatively well. They've had a bad bit of form recently, like before the obviously the season was suspended. But I think West Ham might just might just get sucked into the bottom three towards the end and uh, probably Villa. I think Villa are just too open at the back. Um, they've not been able to solve their defensive issues even though they have one of the best playmakers in the league in Jack Grealish. But uh, they've not been able to solve their defensive issues. So my, my prediction is that it'd be Norwich, Villa and on the last day, I feel West Ham will just get dragged into it right on the last day. We, we actually have we actually have Villa on the last game of the season, which I think could be oh, that could, could be, be a huge that could potentially literally be a six pointer on the last day. I think I think I think you're probably right. I think we've got we're in we're in trouble and we we have been poor and I think we deserve to be where we are. But I think Brighton are going to really struggle. I think they've only had six points um, in 2020. I could be wrong, but I know they're on an awful slump of form and I believe that they are the team making the most noise to not start the season or to have neutral grounds and one of them to be Brighton. So um, I think they are very concerned. They put a lot of faith in, in Graham Potter and I think long-term that's a great move, but the the money they pumped into that club recently, similarly to Bournemouth, who I think will also struggle. Um, I, I think it's going to be a case of... <laughs> of not teams, I think in previous years it's been teams have kept winning, kept winning, kept winning and suddenly they've turned their form around at the end and I think it's just going to, I think they're going to be a, a lot of teams continuously losing games and it'll be whichever team can just claw themselves away from that group. Interesting. Daniele, what, what's, what's your take? What's your prediction on the 
Well, first off, it kills me knowing that Norwich could have had 10 more points because I'm a big fan of, uh, of Puki as a striker myself. I love the way he works the line, the way how big of a poacher he is. And then I will say something. I don't know who will relegate, but the forms really don't matter anymore because teams go through basically another, pre another break, another preseason, and then they're going to have to start playing again. So whatever happened in 2019, 2020, I think it is not relevant anymore because of, uh, of the huge break. It's as if teams have gone uh, through another, another summer break and then they have to get together. And then there are players who get in shape faster than others. And you have other players who need more games to get that uh, the playing rhythm that they need to perform at their highest. So I, I cheer for Norwich, <laughs> even though the situation does not look good now. But um, I would say Billa, Bournemouth, and... Maybe I'm gonna follow what uh, Arshal said. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, and then go for um, go for Brighton. <laughs> That's actually David. I plumped for West Ham, but yeah. You went for West. So you think Norwich are gonna stay up, Daniela? I wish. Yes, I um, I developed uh, an affection for them, and uh, and if uh, if your stats, if there uh, there is any 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 justice. Uh, then your your stats will, uh, will will tell us that Norwich is gonna is gonna um, is gonna make a lot of points in the in the in the final run of the of the season. Yeah, I don't I don't know what their running looks like, but that, that'd be interesting. I think what you say about the form is a very valid point. Um, you know, how can you have form when you haven't played for two months or whatever? But I think when we look at the Bundesliga, for example, is is a bad team, not just a bad team. Uh, Werder Bremen looked absolutely horrendous um, in their first game back. Um, and Frankfurt, who were a little bit of a slump themselves, have again looked atrocious since coming back as well. But then at the same time, you know, Hertha Berlin, who were probably <laughs> in the worst form of anyone by some distance in the Bundesliga, have really turned it around with a new manager in, in the break. So, I mean, maybe. But, yeah, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you, do you think uh, that... Do you think it's more a case of a team being in bad form or do you think it's more of a case of a team just being bad? I think that it, coming back, there's going to be a mix of emotions, motivations. Um, people have gone through maybe even tough times during, the, during this uh, susp suspension. So, yeah, I do agree partly that a bad team remains a bad team. But uh, look, the... the the battle right there at the bottom of the of the table is uh, is tight, so it could be that teams that have the most motivations will prevail, regardless of whether on paper they're actually the team with uh, with the less with the less quality. And just to pop in there, Daniel, I actually looked at Norwich's games. The, they have nine uh, nine games left. The run-in doesn't look too kind. They have this. They have to play Arsenal. Chelsea and City. So three of their nine games are against Arsenal, Chelsea and City. But at the same time, they have three matches against teams around them. So there is a game against West Ham, there is a game against Brighton and there is a match against Watford. So those three matches could potentially be the ones that decide whether they stay up. If they manage to take points from all three of those games, we could be in for a, a, a comeback. And those are the so-called six 
point matches. So those are going to be key. Well, one thing I, I'm certain we will uh, all agree on is they will certainly play to win. They won't play not to lose. And I, I, my sense is that many of the other teams are going to play not to lose. And it is a, it's a brand new season. So uh, really is, and it'll be fascinating to see what that run is. Um, well, thank you for that, folks. Um, why don't we move to the next segment, which is really doing a deeper dive on one of the teams in relegation, Bournemouth, who um, I think in the beginning of the season, really, there was a great deal of promise. There's certainly been a great deal of investment. What I might do is um, I'll share the screen and, and David, if you could just walk us through here, uh, that would be um, really uh, fascinating. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris, and what you say about um, Bournemouth putting out a lot of investment into the team and um, perhaps not getting the results. So the they, they first season in the Premier League was 2015-16, uh, and they finished 16th, following season 9th, then 12th and 14th. And they've had a net spend since then of £133.37 million, which for a club that's really got the label of being a small club is a huge amount as a net spend, let alone, you know, I mean, their actual spend is obviously far greater when you think about some of the players that have left. Um, and I worked out that if we're looking at purely just net spend, that's £653,774.51 pence per point they have made in that time just from net spend. Um, big signings have been Jefferson Lerma, 25 million, Dominic Solanke, 19 million, uh, Billing from Huddersfield and Jordan Ibe, they're both 15 million each. I'm actually a big fan of Philip Billing, but I, I haven't been overly impressed with the, the other three, to be honest with you, um, since they've been a part of the club. So I would question some of their recruitment, certainly. I don't know how you feel about that, Harshal. Yeah, I have absolutely the same thoughts. Um, I remember doing a magazine piece on Bournemouth. I think it was a year ago. I think it was a year ago because they were doing really well at that time and, I, and my magazine piece was basically around how they were doing well So, in the 18-19 season. And the drop-off I've seen from them since then to now has been astonishing. And obviously, um, the injuries they've had um, in the squad have played, played a huge role. As you said earlier, you know, you, they've not had David Brooks. So that's one side of the attack gone. And what... Uh, people also need to remember is that Ryan Fraser has had an absolutely horrendous season on the other side. He had, I think, what, 14 assists in the league last season and he's had barely any. I think he has a couple, if I'm, or maybe even less than that, offices this year. And he was he was, he was was widely touted with a, with a move to a bigger club. I'm sure Arsenal were linked with Fraser last summer, which is crazy when you think back. Yeah, exactly. He was linked to Arsenal and he's actually gone out and spoken on record, I think earlier this year when he said that his head was turned basically and he hasn't. That's the reason why he's not performed at his best. And his contract expires um, at the end of the season and it doesn't look like Burnmouth are going to uh, sort of renew it. So he is a potential bargain for someone to pick up, but that's obviously after all this, um, after the business of this season is done. And yeah, they've, they've not been um, good in terms of their tactics and the way they've played. And I think a lot of it was also down to the fact that Eddie Howe does not really uh, experiment too much. He has a set system and a set formation which he uses. He's not really changed, tried to change things around when things haven't been going well. So, um, all and and as you as we can see on the slide, recruitment hasn't been their strongest suit either. They've not really recruited well on overall. I mean, they've had a couple of good 
buys with overall they've not done well they've spent big money on players who have been so i'm fascinated that eddie howe who is uh manager of the year 2015 now is 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 has really struggled i mean the he is uh many of him see see him as as the the next great hope for uh for english coaching and um it, it's a it's a real vexing issue because i think they they have talent but uh you know the thing about football is it's a it's a game of probabilities right that's why you have to show up and you play the game and it seems like bournemouth has gotten the the kind of the lower the lower hand uh draw of cards uh this season um so um it'll be fascinating to see um how they uh continue to uh go in the next uh eight or nine games um coach talk to us a little bit about how born this performs in the in the half spaces here yeah so well i mean they look to build up from the back to be fair to them um, generally, you'll see him play Nathan Aki and Steve Cook as a centre-back partnership. And Aki is more of a ball player. He'll look to keep the ball quite short when he's playing out. But Steve Cook's more direct, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, they look to have a, a single or a double pivot drop in, uh, generally in the half-space areas, to try and play past the high press, such as in this image that we've got here. But... Uh, for me personally, I feel they get pushed into wide areas far too often, which make it a lot easier to press. Um, and this is just an example of playing inside and the press being set up. It's, it's just a trap to allow them to play into that half space and then press the left back uh, as he's the only option here. So um, they structure a lot of what they do um, from these, like playing into these areas. Um, if, if you look at the, the next slide, Chris, they, this, now this is from Steve Cook's side. A lot of the time, he's going to look to skip the pivot, and the pivot drops deep to bring uh, the opposition press forward, but also to create a gap between uh, the midfield and the defence. That's the opposition midfield and defence. And you can see Callum Wilson play up front predominantly by himself. Uh, and Wilson, don't get me wrong, he's a talented forward, but I personally don't think he's a lone forward. I think he'd be a lot better playing with a, a tar essentially a target man. Um, I think he would have done excellent at West Ham but we're not going to spend 50 million on a player like Cam Wilson. Um, so this just shows the sort of thing that Steve Cook will look to do. We'll have Cam Wilson dropping into the half spaces himself and Cook's going to hit a longer pass and he's off screen in this image, but a longer pass into him then straight away you're going to look for the wide players rather than number 10 to offer support to Wilson. And that can lead to him being isolated if the wingers aren't high enough. But as you can see in this example, you've got the left winger inverting from his side and he comes into a more traditional 10 slash really number nine position where you'd expect someone to be. He's going to come in closer, whereas the right winger would go behind. And you see a lot of the time uh, with Bournemouth, with Wilson, what they'll do is, again, look to draw the defence out. That's something that we've seen a lot of their play. So Wilson drops deep, looking to bring the centre-back with him in this. In this David, game. just if I could quickly jump in there, I think... Um First of all, uh, the comment that West Ham wouldn't spend 50 million on Wilson, but this, some of the players they've spent on aren't really um, lighting up the league either, are they? In terms of West Ham, not Burnwood. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's I think that's a bit unfair. I think it's a bit. I think Ala we spent good money on, but we played him in the wrong system. I think Felipe Anderson was really good last year, but he's uh, struggled this year. But I don't I don't think our style of football suited him particularly either. 
Um, but I mean, Yamalenko, I think, has been a bit of a flop. Although he's sure, been injured 20, as well. 20, 20 million is a lot less to, to spend than 50. than 50. Yeah. But so that was just because I picked up I mean, on that. But Callum Wilson had a huge barren run this season. I can't remember how many minutes it was, but it was an obscene amount of time without even, I think it was having a shot on target, let alone a goal. Um, and so they've really struggled to get the, the ball into decent attacking areas as a team. And that tells you um, directly in terms of how much of a drop-off Burnmouth have had. Because based on his form for Burnmouth, he's got England caps over the last couple of years. But uh, coming back to some of the deeper sort of stuff that you were talking about, I think a lot of it is down to the fact in terms of how Burnmouth built up and the fact that they've not been that effective is the fact that they've they usually play a 4-4-2, right? Or a 4-4-1-1 or at most, I mean, although I haven't really seen Eddie Howe do this too much, but I think he's played a 4-2-3-1 a few times. But it's basically a 4-4-2, basically two, where you have those sort of three lines with two banks of four and two attackers up front, right? And that sort of, that position, uh, that uh, formation lends itself to you having, or the team having to uh, build up down the wings. The natural progression of the ball usually happens down the wings because you're because the midfield is in straight lines. You don't have the sort of players in between the lines, which for example, if you were playing a 4-2-3-1, you would naturally have a number 10 in the half spaces centrally and in between the lines to pick up the ball. Whereas in a 4-4-2, especially with Josh King and Callum Wilson, both of them are the type of guys. Uh, I mean, I don't think either of them really drops into the space. It's more Josh King usually drifts out wide. And that's, again, why they try to progress the ball down the flanks. And that, again, plays into the fact that teams have identified this and they, and they sort of set up pressing traps so that when the ball does go out wide and it's easier for teams to press when the ball is out wide because you've got the touchline there as well as a natural sort of barrier. So that allows teams to press burn with a lot easier because they know they're only going to... Um, or they're aiming to progress the ball down wide, uh, out wide. I think it'd be a... I mean, Eddie Howe could do better than to try and... Um, instigate some sort of passing movement or progressive ball uh, sort of, you know, movement through the centre of the pitch. Because I think that's something that they're really lacking. I, I just don't think they have, I don't think they have the players for it. And I think you know, they have used the 4-1-4 four, four more, more often, but only slightly. I think Philip Billing, as I mentioned earlier, is a very intelligent player, really good manipulating space. But other than Billing, I don't think there's a huge amount of quality in the spine of that side. Um, I think, uh, I think they, they're, I think they're slightly better with the four-one-four-one than a four-four-two, but I don't think it's by much. In fact, I'm sure I have the points per games for those formations somewhere. Um, let me see. Yeah, four-one-four-one is zero point eight points per game. Ah, four-four-two is one point zero seven points per game. So actually, slightly better than a four-four-two. So, so Daniele, any any thoughts on the these tactical elements? And you know, you you have to actually get on the pitch and and put balls in the back of the net you have a take on on this looking at this picture i really like what uh what bournemouth are doing because this is the what we call the third man right so the the deeper guy on the field initiate the action in this case by passing it to the white guy and then he just attacks the space higher up the field the ball doesn't come straight at him it comes at him after another pass which is going to involve the player that you guys see right now in between lines as a 10. And that, that is key to, uh, to create space and to allow a guy, like the deeper guy, to attack the space without the ball. So when it comes to him, he's, he's going to be in full sprint, 
and uh, in a good position, even though he only basically touched the ball at the beginning, and then he, all, he, all he had to do was was run and uh, and trust trust his teammates. Look, and, and and it's a lot easier. This was against Chelsea, who who in this game played a, a, a three five two, but in defence that's a a five four one or or a four five one, depending. So, I mean, wing backs are a lot more likely to come forward and get pulled out of position, and that's less of an issue. But nevertheless, that was something they're looking to do. And again, we see him focusing on pulling players out of the defence and then trying to hit that space. But yeah, Daniel is absolutely spot on. So, yeah, I mean, there's several things I could talk about with um, with Bournemouth, but the, one of the big issues is how they look on defensive transition, which I think is a, has been a big issue for them this season. And it's particularly evident in the Liverpool game. Don't get me wrong. Liverpool are very good at, at, at drawing teams and making mistakes and, and not transitioning as quick as they do. Um, but nevertheless... I think uh, in this game, again, it, it showed a lack of depth in the side. Jack Simpson was playing at centre-back, who had a woeful time in this game. Um, and in this particular case, he's decided to play the pass uh, to his teammate from this distance whilst under pressure, which is just absolute madness. Um, but what's particularly interesting is that the right-back here, we can see is starting to creep forward, even though Sadio Mane is, is standing next to him, leaving Nathan Ake incredibly by himself. Um, whereas if we look at the Liverpool front three, we've got Firmino, Salah and Mane all in a straight line, uh, close possession and narrow so that they can counter-press, uh, sorry, counter really, really quickly. Um, and they do this when they counter-press. You'll see uh, as soon as the, the ball is lost, suddenly they get into that shape again and the midfielder are incredibly effective winning the ball back quickly. Um, and in this case, the right-back came up too far out of, out of position and um, Liverpool won the ball back here and countered straight through the centre of the pitch. And this is just an isolated incident, but um, th there are several examples of this happening this season. And some of them have led to goals, some of them haven't. But there seems to be a lack of, I don't know if it's a lack of understanding or whether they're just not well drilled enough in switching from in possession into the defensive transition. And um, you see things like this happen where both, both fullbacks are high and maybe the centre-backs could be split, or in this case, the centre-backs are split uh, vertically rather than horizontally. And that's a big issue. And I think that you, you're going to really struggle in a league like the Premier League where pressing and counter-attacking is becoming so much more prevalent um, season upon season if you can't switch into defensive transition quick enough, if you're not smart enough as a team to see that. Another thing, um, sorry, Christopher, to cut you out. Another thing I have noticed personally about going defensively as well is that... Um, they concede a lot of goals where the ball is played in behind and their offside line doesn't really work. As in, and, and they're trying to catch the opposition offside, but they've, I mean, the line isn't being held properly or someone's um, either dropped deep or has not pushed up quick enough and the opposition has gone on and, uh, you know, scored. And that, again, to tie into what David says, it maybe points towards they're not being, I mean, I think that they might not be doing enough defensive work, both in transition and in the proper defensive phase as well. Is, I mean, I and I throw it to Daniel or David. I mean, obviously Daniel has is plays the game and he would know. And David also uh, is a coach. That, but I would think that that side of the game, the defensive side and simple stuff like the offside line and all of that, would be basics or rather. Um, you would be expected to have those concepts drilled into you, if not at the beginning of the seasons. I mean, they should be 
second nature as the season goes on, right? Yeah, 100%. I think, I think with the point Harshaw makes, that's a, fair, that's a fair point. It's not something that I'd actually seen, but that's interesting. I'll have to have a look at that. Um, I mean, as, as a guess, I would, I would say that uh, they, they've had a huge amount of personnel changes in their back four, which doesn't help. Um, and I think that they play the high line to, to try and support Wilson, particularly when he's playing by himself. You don't want to play a deep line when you're playing with a, a lone forward. That's, that's quite difficult for that forward, particularly if you're looking to counter effectively. And Bournemouth aren't as good. You know, when you look at teams like Liverpool, for example, Bournemouth aren't going to outplay a Liverpool. So it comes down to moments in the game. And, and one of the easiest ways for like a team like that to get a result is to force errors, which is easier said than done. But that might suggest why they play with a, a higher line in those games. And I will add to, um, to the visual that, that David gave us, especially when you play against high-pressing team like Liverpool's, horizontal passes, also called square passes, they are the worst because they're very dangerous and they're the easiest to intercept. And you know what happens when a team like Liverpool intercepts that kind of pass with the fast players they have in front, then you're, you're in real danger. Interesting. Well, good. Well, um, one thing we, I wanted to bring up with you, David, uh, Daniele, Harshell and I spoke before uh, the recording, as well as other folks in the community, and we're wondering, you, you made, you've made some great choices. Uh, uh, you married a, a great woman, uh, Maddie, from a reputable family, but you're still making poor life choices on choosing to cheer for West Ham. So we are actively intervening right now to try to figure out... <laughs> How do we shake this bad habit of yours? Sure, because it's, it's very self-destructive. I yeah, think. my my nan uh, grew up on Green Street. Funnily enough, so she, uh, she used to go to games when she was a kid, and then that was just passed on to my dad, and that was passed on to me. So you don't you don't you don't choose West Ham. You're you're given West Ham. <laughs> but it's been um, it's been a difficult experience. I think in recent years with moving to the stadium, I thought. I'm sure a lot of West Ham fans would agree with me. I think we were sold a bit of a dream there. And uh, as a season ticket holder, I can tell you that the match day experience is, is not worth what, what we pay. And actually, I won't be renewing next season. I've already made that decision. Wow. Interesting. Well, what we'd like to do is go ahead and switch to the next segment, uh, which is really having a conversation about the pre-COVID team of the year. As Dan Daniele pointed out, because of this break, it's really kind of two seasons uh, we're going to be starting, or second season starting, hopefully, um, in mid to late June. Um, Harshal, can you walk us through uh, the uh, – I guess what we're going to do is we're going to put a poll uh, up, up on, on Twitter, and um, we're going to figure out what the people's choice is. And next time around, we're going to discuss who the winners are. But can we spend a few minutes and talk about the candidates? Can you, can you walk us through that? Yep. So um, I'm going to start at the back, and uh, I think obviously Chris, with you having obviously you've played the game as a keeper, so we're going to start off there and try to at first try and figure out who were the best keepers in the league, uh, obviously pre-COVID. So um, the candidates are Dean Henderson from Sheffield United, Allison from Liverpool, Nick Pope at Burnley. Um, Casper Schmeichel at Leicester City, Bern Leno at Arsenal, and Ben Foster um, from Watford. So, um, if I just want to keep start that discussion, in my opinion, um, I'd say it, it it would be Dean Henderson for me. And while there is a bit of um, 
uh, I'd say favoritism there because he is obviously a Manchester United player on loan at Sheffield United, and I want him to do well because then there's a chance of him coming back and taking the spot at Old Trafford. But even if I look at it just from an objective point of view, Henderson has been extremely impressive. He has uh, he's he's been a big part of why Sheffield United have, are where they are in the table, and you know the challenging for Europe. So their defense has been a big part of that. And within that defensive unit, obviously uh, Henderson has done really well. He's um, he's made some fantastic saves uh, throughout the season. And another thing that's really shown through is his mentality, because I think most of I mean whoever has been following the league would remember that um, he made a pretty big error in the game against Liverpool at Bramall Lane at their stadium uh, early on uh, in the season, which was the only goal of the game. They were nil nil at the time, and he made an error, and I think it was Firmino who scored. Um, and that could have easily led to a sort of crisis in confidence and him sort of spiraling and not being able to keep up his performances. But in that very same game, he pulled off a brilliant save, I think, a few minutes later. And he's, his performance levels have actually only gotten better since then. So that just shows that he has the mentality and he has the sort of mental strength to be able to cope with playing in the Premier League. And I'll go as far as to say that, in my opinion, he should be uh, England's number one sooner rather than later. I don't think Jordan Pickford is good enough um, in terms of his pure goalkeeping ability to be the number one keeper for England. Um, so, in my opinion, it should be Dean Anderson who should be the goalkeeper of the in the family. What do you guys think? All right. Well, well, I'll offer two other um, vantage points quickly because I know we have a lot of uh, positions to cover. But, you know, it's hard to... Um, to vote against an Allison. Um, you know, he clearly hasn't had the save opportunities, but what's, what's freaky about him is it seems like he always takes the ball in the, in the chest and that's because his positioning and his ability to see things two tenths of a second faster is better than most. And sometimes when you have such an outstanding defense and you don't have many opportunities to make a save, one can get rusty. And I really haven't seen much let up at all from him. Um, one or two exceptions. Um, so that's one case. It's hard. It's hard to vote against a keeper where they're 25 points ahead, right? And their their, you know, their uh, defensive numbers are are stellar. And we'll get into the specifics next week. The other I'd probably advocate is is for Casper Schmeichel. Um, you know, there there had he has had to kind of transition a fairly youngish defense, and you know I'm. I think the metrics are going to bear really well um, with his um, his performances next week, but th there's also just that that what coaches just call swagger, where where you just know that he's going to make that big save when he needs to, and um, I know that's that's not quantifiable per se, but most of the coaches I know uh, that don't know a whole lot about goalkeeping end up going with that rightly or wrongly but i think he might be the best combination quite honestly i'm not sure lester is in the top four uh without his performances so um those are the, those are my thoughts on keeping but they, they've greatly outperformed their expected goals against uh chris as well and they've had a expected goals against of 36.5 and yeah just i think next week when we get into the numbers we'll see that that schmeichel is 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 really in the top of the uh the, the rankings and, and many of the goalkeeping um, metrics, but let's carry on to defenders. What, what's, what, where, what's your read on the defenders? Um, 
So obviously, Liverpool stands out straight away. So um, Virgil van Dijk, Joe Gomez are two of the standout options. But then you've also got the Leicester pair, um, who we think have done really well, which is obviously Chagla Soyuncu and Johnny Evans, and then a sole Man United representative in Harry Maguire. So from just looking at the centre backs, I feel um, it should be the Liverpool pair hands down. Van Dijk and Joe Gomez have, even though I, th- I think Gomez hasn't really played throughout the season, it was Joel Matip who was playing at the start and then he got injured and they had Lovren playing for a bit as well because Gomez himself, I think, was recovering from an injury. But since he's come back, he's formed a really good partnership with Van Dijk and, uh, and the numbers speak for themselves. Liverpool's defensive numbers have been astonishing this year. And, uh, so you're, you're telling me player for player for player, you think Joe Gomez is better than Charles, aren't you? Um, maybe not player for player. Okay, go ahead. I mean, listen, I think. Go on, sorry. Well, I, I, listen, I don't think Zayunchu is like a world beater. He makes mistakes, but I think if you ask me who is the better individual player, not part of the better unit, then you have to, surely have to go with Zayunchu, not Gomez. So that's what I am probably looking at this from the point of view in terms of what the entire team would look like and in terms of what they would, I mean, how they would play as a unit. But you're obviously, in, in terms of what you're saying, you're basically going to pick the best 11 players, right? So in that sense, um, yeah, probably Soyuncu. But honestly, in my opinion, I think Johnny Evans has been a better defender for Leicester this season than Soyuncu. He's very underrated and people have been talking a lot more about Soyuncu. But I think Evans has been the guy who's been leading the defence in terms of He's just a lot, I mean, he's extremely calm. And I'm not saying that Soyuncu isn't. Soyuncu is a brilliant player and he has a lot of potential given that this was his debut. I think this is his debut season, right? So um, he does have a lot of potential, but I think Evans has the experienced head next to him. Um, all I'm trying to say we is. We have a very Manchester United themed team here. <laughs> I knew Archie. you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that, but no, that's not the, that's not the aim of this. Uh, Although, I mean, to be fair, this is basically what United are going to pick up, right? Somehow try and get somebody into the team of the season. We're not winning anything else. So, <laughs> I'll take what I can get. But So, so Daniele, as, as, a, as a striker, who, who would you enjoy least going up against of, of, of those defenders? Besides Van Dijk, obviously, which a player that um, has to be there. I think that I will, um, I will go with David and I'm going to go with Soyuncu because... This guy is um, very aggressive, and at the same time, he's young. So as as soon as he learns when to step step out and when to wait, he can become really a a complete defender. Not that he's not complete now, but he, he has uh, room for improvement. So as soon as he as he steps up his um, his mental game, I would say his uh, awareness, then uh, then it will be it will be a, a tough guy to go against. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, good. Well, so let's let's switch to midfielders now. Um, Harshal, what, what what do you got for us? Um, there's quite a huge selection of players because I mean three roles in midfield. But I'll just pick out some of the standout um, candidates that we have. So um, first up, obviously Kevin De Bruyne leading the league in assists. Good break. Thierry Henry's um, all-time season record of 20 assists this year. Um, he's on what? He's on 16. So pretty much in his grasp to be able to get past on these record. Um, you have Fabinho, who before his injury was showing how crucial he is to locking down the defensive side of things for Liverpool. Um, 
Wilfred Ndidi, a similar sort of player for Leicester, who they've, they've missed hugely when he's been um, during the time when he was injured. I mean, I don't have the stats on hand right now, but the difference in points per game when he has played as opposed to when he hasn't played is, is massive for Leicester. Um, and again, if you look at some of the more attacking midfielders, you have Mateo Kovacic, who has done who's, who's shown uh, that he can be the box-to-box sort of guy who drives with the ball forward for Chelsea. And two really good young English playmakers in Jack Grealish and uh, James Madison. Who, I mean, I don't know if they'll play for England because um, England don't really play with a playmaker or a number 10. But they're certainly putting the case forward to be in the discussion for England, especially with the Euros being postponed and we're having them next year. So they have another season to be, you know, try and get into them. But standout midfielder of the year by far has to be Kevin De Bruyne. He's had, even though City have dropped down a level from where they were last year, he has, he does, he has, he's, he's been one of the most, as he has been in his time in the Premier League, been one of the most creative and most dangerous midfielders in the league. What do you guys think? Any other players or any who else do you think has been good from that one? Well, I mean, I think obviously, the, yeah, completely agree with what you said about De Bruyne. I think uh, Grealish has, yeah, had a real breakout season, and um, I think he deserves potentially to be in this team. I think he's had the fifth most uh, progressive runs per ninety minutes in the, in the league, um, which is outstanding. And uh, particularly when you look at the, the team that he's been playing in this season, um, I think. Oliver Norwood deserves a, a mention. I think he's been outstanding in central midfield for Sheffield United. Um, I saw a graphic recently on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, so I apologise, but I, I, I can't remember who did it. I want to say one of the Liverpool guys, Distance Covered, I think might have done it, and it showed um, which player is most likely to switch the ball in the league when they have possession and it's Oliver Norwood by a mile and he's just very good at circulating the ball, keeping things ticking. As soon as a team like, for example, Sheffield United overload one side of the pitch and they're looking to quickly exploit um, space on the other side, he's just a, a phenomenal option to do that quickly. I think that a lot of what he does won't show up statistically, um, but I think he's been excellent. Um, Daniela, anyone that you've seen this season that you've been particularly impressed with in, in central midfield? Well, I'm a fan of, uh, of Jorginho. Of his short passes, of the fact that he's always positioned right with his body, always sideways, never facing his own goal, so that he doesn't know what's going, what's going on behind him. His awareness is uh, is just incredible. And as a guy who has to put pressure, as a guy myself who has to put pressure on the um, the central defensive midfielder, those that know when you're coming are the worst to press because they know when to release, when to take a touch around you. And then uh, for the, the remaining two, I'm going to go with uh, Kevin De Bruyne and uh, I'm going to go with Wijnaldum. It's, uh, his, um, his runs are just killer. The way he, he times his runs in the box and uh, his others too um, make a difference. So who we put? So we've got De Bruyne for sure as a lock-in, right? And I'd probably be willing to, to go with Kovacic as well. So it's that final spot. I'm going to say Norwood, but if you guys want to go with uh, Jorginho, that's, I'll, I'll take that. That's, that's, that's. My contention, uh, David, my contention with Norwood is that is he, like, is it the system that's making him that good? Or is he a good player by himself in the sense that I think Sheffield United are just so incredibly well drilled and everybody knows their role so well, which is obviously, I'm not saying that um, 
that makes Norwood a bad player. All I'm saying is that he he's 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 being elevated, or he's maybe um, the best of his game has come out because of the team he's playing in, and he may not be able to do it in another team. You could argue that about any any player, really. It's about around the links with what they have, but I think Norwood's been outstanding, and he's got a very important role in that team. Um, I think he has the third most. Uh, passed into the final third in the league in total behind Jorginho and Alexander Arnold, which is not bad company. Um, so I think he's incredibly underrated, and I, I would say that actually, if any, if anything, the fact that he's doing it in a Sheffield United team where I think the the sum of their parts is greater um, certainly than they are by themselves, and um, I, I think if you put him in a in a team possibly and this is no no diss to the Sheffield United players, but you put him in a team where he was surrounded by better players, I think that you would see an even greater increase in, in what he what he can do. Well, good. Well, let's go ahead and, and switch our attention to the strikers or the forwards. Yeah, we've got a whole host of options here. Um, so, Jamie Vardy leads the scoring charts at the moment, could potentially pick up the Golden Boot this year. Um, Aubameyang, Aguero, Danny Ings has had uh, quite a, I wouldn't say a breakout season because he's been around for a while, but it's certainly been his best season by far in terms in front of goal. Um, and if you were to look at some of the wider attackers who've done well, Sadio Mane has been outstanding for Liverpool. Um, Raheem Sterling, although he's not hit the heights that he has previously for City, but he's again been a consistent sort of goal scorer and he's provided assists as well. On the opposite side, you've got Salah, and Riyad Mahrez have done well. Um, Rashford was doing well before he got injured. Youngman Son similarly was doing really well before he got he picked up an injury as well. So there's a lot of players to pick from here. And for me, if you were asking me what my ideal front three from this list would be, it'd probably be Mane, Vardy, and uh, Salah. Like probably that's what who I would. Be. David, what's your take? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough one. I think that um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there are a bunch of players that could be. I mean, so I think Vardy for me goes in straight away. Twenty four goals and assists combined, which is the most in the league. So I feel like you have to put him in. And I'll keep it short and sweet. I think Sergio Mane is possibly in the conversation of top five possibly even top three players in the world right now. I think he's just a phenomenal individual talent. Um, and I think that regardless of what's going on in the world right now and financially, I still think there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of big clubs looking mainly at Barca and Real Madrid who would like to bring someone like him in. Daniele. I'm going to have to go with Mares because the way um, he cuts on the right wing is just, is just fabulous for me. Um, and then I would like also to to mention Danny Ings, as a, I studied a lot of, of number nines, and and he is um, he is amazing in the box, his movements, the way he uh, he tests the line, and um, he's always in the right spot in the in the at the right moment. I think Ings has had a great season. Um, I'm going to be honest and say I don't think he'll be this good again next season. I think he's a 12-goal, 13-goal sort of striker, and I think he's on 15 this season already. And I know for a fact that he's vastly outperformed his expected goals, which always concerns me slightly. 
if I see that, I'd, like, I'd much prefer to see a player scoring their exact expected goals. That's where I sort of go, okay, I'm happy, I'm happy with that. You don't expect that performance to fluctuate necessarily. Um, but yeah, I think I think he's had a great season. I think if the Euros had been on this summer, I think he would have gone. I yeah, think I, think, I think he's missed his chance with England. Yeah, I don't. I don't. If I'm going to be bold, and I don't think he'll be in the squad for next summer. But yeah. for Daniele's sake, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so, as a, as a current keeper, um, but more, uh, I think. My mindset is I know 75% of the goals are scored between the 6 and the 18. And if you look at the posts and you go out diagonally, and the people that I would fear the absolute most in that so-called kill zone is Aguero um, and Salah and Mane. I just, I, they have such a presence of mind in my mind and, that's where if that's where seventy five percent of the goals are scored, uh, those are the sort of strikers I'm going to fear the most. And uh, I would say Aguero is 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 maybe even a little half notch above the other two, just because he can he can score so many different ways, whether it's on the three three yard line, on a hard low cross, um, or um, you know from the twelve or fourteen yards out. So um, those would be my my three picks, um, but. We're going to let the people decide uh, and have this discussion next week. Uh, so I think that was a, a wonderful primer um, on things. And um, I, I oh, we should, Chris, should we point out that we're doing it as a four-three-three? Or did you already say that? Uh, yes, it is a, as a four-four-three-three. Um, thank you for uh, reminding folks that, and we'll probably put that out on the um, in the Twitterverse as well. Um, so um, our podcast is generously supported by the Accelerator School, a North Carolina soccer-focused middle and high school with locations in Raleigh, North Carolina and Malaga, Spain. Please visit them at www.accelerator.school. Um, we'd like to also thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com and join and support the revolution. So join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. Free at last, free at last. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.